You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. In this episode, I am speaking once again with the amazing and the mighty David Dark. He is an American writer, the author of Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, the sacredness of questioning everything, everyday apocalypse, the sacred revealed in Radiohead, the Simpsons and other pop culture icons, and the gospel according to America, a meditation on a God-blessed, Christ-haunted idea, which was included in Publisher Weekly's top religious books of 2005. He also contributed a chapter to the book Radiohead and Philosophy, Fitter, Happier, More Deductive, Following years of teaching high school English, he received his doctorate in 2011 and now teaches at the Tennessee Prison for Women, Charles Bass Correctional Facility, and Belmont University, where he is assistant professor in the College of Theology. He is a resident of Nashville, Tennessee, and he is married to the singer-songwriter Sarah Masson. But before we get to David Dark, I have just a few pieces of housekeeping. First... As always, I am relying on my patrons now more than ever. I am working less uh, to reduce my exposure to the coronavirus, and I'm not teaching yoga at all. So my uh, income has taken a considerable hit. If you're able to give to small independent artists, please do, not just to me, because we really do rely on you for our ongoing creativity and our ongoing work. So for this episode, I have to thank Andrew Donald, Champlu, Anya, Bethany, and Brock. Thank you so much. You are my personal lords and saviors, and I really could not do this without you. And for listeners who might want to join their number, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar a month or $5 a month. You get extra content every week, primarily my House of Heretics podcast with the Christian minister, Timothy, and we talk about everything from fisting to fuck the police and uh, everything in between. So all the uh, not safe for work stories, all my um, all my deviant horror sex stories, you get those on Patreon. And uh, I haven't traumatized Timothy too much, I think. But uh, if that interests you, please do contribute to my Patreon and it will ensure the long life of my work. Now, you might be like most of us and in a position where you just can't support 
uh, a small artist right now. And if that's the case, I completely understand. There are other really great ways to support my work. One is to just leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Another is to just subscribe wherever you're listening. Whatever podcast app you're on, go ahead and hit subscribe. And that tells our digital overlords to recommend this show to others. So for this episode, I'm going to read a five-star review. This is from Kahini Walla. They say, good news for queer folk. Wow, I just listened to two of three of the Timothy trilogy, and it is a deep dive into queer theology fleshed out in a life. Atheism or agnosticism seems to be the least painless option for queer people of faith in toxic environments. But Timothy refused to shy away from the liminal spaces of desire and mystery. Equally accessible for straight and queer folks alike, this podcast is well-produced and not too full of insider terminology or humor, although it is undoubtedly there. That is a very sweet review, and if you haven't already listened to that trilogy that this reviewer is talking about, it is my interview with Timothy Wilds, in which he came out on air, lifelong conservative Christian, and just shared his incredible story with my audience. Um, so if you do leave a five-star a five star review, I will read it on the show. I will also read a one-star review on the show if I ever get one. Uh, so with all of that out of the way, oh, and then one last thing, this show is sponsored by thesatanictemple.tv. Go to thesatanictemple.tv and use my promo code at checkout, sacred tension, all caps, no space, for one month free. They have all kinds of rituals, lectures, live streams, documentaries, feature films, all kinds of stuff that you can enjoy while you are in quarantine. And uh, so if you have an interest in new religious movements and occultism and religion in general, then definitely take advantage of that. All right, David Dark, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. I'm really glad to be back on. I enjoyed our conversation. Years yeah. ago. Years point, ago. I think. <laughs> that was in 20... Yeah, I believe it was years ago. It was years ago. That was, it, you know, that was in 2017, and you were actually my second interview. My my first interview was Chris Shelton, the ex-Scientologist, and then second mm. interview I ever did was uh, with you. And that was back in the day when I still had no idea what I was doing. I had absolutely mm. no Not clue. Not a bad place to be. Yeah. <laughs> and... um you know, I I've wanted to have you on. I, I've wanted to have you back on ever since, especially now that I've I've figured my shit out as a podcaster, and mm. and so now I I feel like I can actually have you on the show and and do you some justice because I the I was still figuring out how the hell to do this thing back when you were on the mm. first time. So, well, I felt very well handled at the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm glad. Um, so first of all, how are you? How are you doing with the current state of the world? For listeners, uh, by the way, we are recording this on uh, the 27th of October. It is just before the election, mm. and this will air after the election. So this will air mid-November. So uh we might oh, be interesting. Yeah, so we might be coming to you from the nice sunny pre-election world where the only thing we had to worry about was COVID-19 and and forest fires. Um or maybe mm. or maybe the world will look much better <laughs> by that we just don't know. So so David, wow. how how are you dealing? How are you dealing with this year? How are you doing? Well, that's a really good 
thought experiment, and it's really interesting to imagine, um, yeah, being heard by someone, even myself, um, on In the, the other future, side of on the other side of this. Today. So I'll say that for now, I am feeling some hope. I think that the last four years have been very clarifying. Um, a big phrase for me lately is deferential fear. And that's just the fear mm. <clears throat> that paralyzes people mm. into silence and inaction when they know that something horrible is happening and or abusive and or traumatizing. The last four years have been in education in realizing that even millionaires, and I have in mind, I guess I would say mostly Republican elected officials, as well as famous people who could weigh in and say something, whether it's a musician, actor, famous authors, all that sort of stuff. It seems to me that many people who I once thought after you make, say, your first million dollars, I thought that deferential fear is not so much a thing and you're kind of free to say whatever you want to say, to say what you see, we might say. So I've been amazed at how deferential fear has reduced so many people to silence, which is also often a form of complicity. But I am feeling, I'm an educator, and or I, I get paid as an educator, and I think education itself is the overcoming of deferential fear within families, local, state, national, global. And I have been more energized in that work of helping people with their writing, helping people kind of access their own experience and listen to their own intuition more. And I felt more, well, energized and called to try to help folks with that, whether it's in the classroom or dealing with an honest question or an honest expression of confusion on Twitter or mm. um, social media. So I am, um, and I'll note that because I'm, I'm a 50-year-old who taught high school English for many years, went back to school to try to get a Ph.D., which was a, a dangerous move for a, somebody in their late 30s with three kids. <laughs> um, but somehow we we worked it out. I eventually got a job teaching at Belmont. And, and so all that to say, I am more comfortable than most because my livelihood has not been torn down by this pandemic. I still get a paycheck. I still have a health plan. And um, I'm able to conduct classes online. So I want to recognize my privilege while also noting that the pandemic itself has been very clarifying the way the election of all those four years ago was clarifying in that sense that, at least in this country, there is no pilot. Um, <laughs> there are just people. Well, there are pilots, I should say, local organizations, neighborhoods, cities. But in terms of a federal response, at least for now, we we have a bunch of frightened people who um, are doing whatever they can to hold on to their spots and to stay out of jail. So watching that conflict avoidance occur among people who who could behave very differently, who could risk something and maybe risk something in the terms of in terms of telling the truth but won't. That's been quite the eye opener and it can have me, you know, feeling like I'm in a 
episode of Walking Dead or something. But I'm I'm quite yes. comfortable comparatively, <laughs> and I'm um, enjoying talking to people. Great. You know, there is something about this pandemic, which is just kind of tearing away the curtain to reveal the man behind the curtain. It. That's right. It's an apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is an apocalypse, and it's it it is revealing all of the underlying rot in our culture and in our political system you know we we've we have just kind of comfortably been cut adrift um in terms yeah. of communities in terms of you know it was it was really revealing for me because i manage a grocery store how when the pandemic first hit the level of panic that just swept through our community and and drove people to overbuy and mm. and and I couldn't help but look at that. And I mean, it was the hardest two weeks of my entire adult life. It was wow. in terms of work, in terms of the intensity of work. Like it, it, it was the most brutal working experience I've ever had in my life, trying to manage a store through that. But I couldn't help but look, look at it and just think, we are so estranged from one another and we don't feel yeah. like we can rely on one another for help mm -hmm. and for security and for resources that we that we all just rush to the store at once and buy, you know, a lifetime supply of toilet paper and jam the entire yeah. supply chain. It it mm -hmm. I couldn't help but look at that and feel like it was just um, symptomatic of our, our of our culture of being cut adrift from one another. I don't know if mm -hmm. I was misreading that, but that was that was one of the ways in which I felt like this pandemic just revealed some underlying rot in our culture it, yeah. on just multiple levels. So you were talking about def uh, deferential fear and yes, and how you as an educator are are working against. That, that deferential fear. What does that look like? In what way are you, are you trying to empower people through education? I have all kinds of little things, like to love a person is to love a process. Mm. Um, every fact is a function of relationship. And um, I'm, here, here's what, I don't know if I had this the last time we spoke. I don't find the word sin helpful but if sin, if we could give a definition of sin that is helpful, it is this. Sin is active flight from a lived realization mm. of available data. Mm. Sin is the denial of relationship, mm. is the denial of kinship. And so as an educator, I think the job for me as someone who we read all kinds of texts, I have a religion and science fiction course, I've got a world religions course, I do a Bible course, and in all of those, I I think my theme is others have been here where we are, mm. and they have left us some wisdom. That wisdom comes out of a deep awareness of relationship, of finding myself in the other, even finding myself in the person that I'm tempted to villainize. So in our writing and in our research, I'm trying to teach folks to look hard at their sources and to look really hard at um, the terms that leave them estranged from one another. I should say the terms which go unexamined 
and therefore lead to estrangement. And the three big ones for me that always come up are religion, politics, and media. I like to say that those three words are the most catastrophically unexamined words of our time because with religion, politics, and media, I can blame everything, including my own behavior, on someone else. The media media is a big one because we speak of the media as if it's this cabal of folks that are trying to hide things. And I don't think that exists, but I do think that there's there's what we call news, which is real news, such as where do I have to go to vote or where can I get surgical masks that my government has paid for. And, you know, that's real news. News product is Trump slams Borat or Borat slams Trump. I mean, that is a a story that is not exactly news, but it is something that is sold as news and therefore generates clicks, therefore contributes to ad revenue. So part of my work is to help people think through their abstractions, kind of see and experience themselves, finding center, lest we let marketers do all of our thinking for us. And there's a, this was Ron Sutanik who said, if you don't use your own imagination, someone else will use it for you. And I think my gig is helping people access their own imagination. Mm. Wow. Okay, so to to run through those three things that you feel like, those three terms that you feel like are just horribly unexamined, it is media, religion, and politics. And and those three great abstractions that feel like they are just controlling and ruining all of our lives right now. (laughs) Well, yeah, the way they contain that which is ruining our lives. Yeah. Like we feel stupefied. We feel overwhelmed if I can call that which I feel attacked by Hmm. religion or politics or media, I can kind of, I can gain some ground where I at least feel like I'm above the fray. Hmm. But part of my provocation with that is media is simply plural for medium. And to say I'm against the media is like saying I'm against paper or I'm against postcards. Yeah. It's like media is just, it's just that. And yes, there, there is something that is called the media that you're going to want to think about. But there's also a deep sense in which there is no the media. There's just people. Hmm. Similarly with politics, politics is just a question of how we want to organize our resources. And my my provocation for that is where two or more are gathered, politics. Like that's it's, it's happening. <laughs> I love that. Yes, it's true. And if two and if people are being good to each other, that's what we call good politics. If I'm quite happy to get to pay in taxes a portion of my earned income, so that um, children can have lunch, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Or so math books and laptops are available to the children of this nation during a pandemic. That's good politics. Mm. Um, there is bad politics. There is toxic politics. But <clears throat> to say politics is if we all there is to talk about is how bad it is. That's that's not so useful. And religion, I define as perceived necessity. Mm. 
And we all have that. Yeah. Ed, we all have uh, an emerging, evolving sense of perceived necessity. My my perceived necessity once upon a time is that everybody had better get baptized or they're going to hell. Hmm. I don't I don't feel that way anymore at all. Not, not even remotely. But I've my sense of beloved community of Jewish and Christian tradition, sacred scripture, all of that has evolved considerably from when I was 15 and thinking that I better get baptized or I'm going to be in, be in eternal conscious pain. And so with all of those two, religion or politics, I like to say that nobody ultimately is more or less political than anyone else. And some, I would say the same thing about who is and isn't. Religious. I understand the damage, that the abuse, the terror, that that which is called religion has done to people. But that doesn't mean that anything that can be called religion is therefore toxic. It's kind of like politics. True religion is caring about the people around you and looking after yourself. And true politics is kind of the same thing. <laughs> you will be happy to know that your book, Life's Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, was uh, mm. was a big influence on me in finding Satanism. So you are so so. I love it. Please tweet that at <laughs> I will. I, I love. There are the title is purposefully provocative, and a lot of people, without reading the book, yeah, um, think that I'm just trying to sneak this in. But anyone who reads it all the way through recognizes, I think, that there is no argument for the existence of God or an argument against the existence of God in that book. It's just, and I'm I'm pleased that it had that effect. I'm nowhere near <laughs> as well-versed as you are in in the Satanism that you now adhere to, but I love the film Hail Satan. Oh, good. I... Yeah, and I would be willing to say that the film Hail Satan is, in fact, gospel, because mm. it is good news mm. for people who are trying to free themselves from mental slavery. It was just it was just as delightful as can be, and I love knowing I have at least um, I'm uh, Penny Lane and I follow each other on Twitter, so I have a little bit of a connection there. Yeah. But I'm glad to know someone who, um, like you, who is a little... And I love that, that this podcast is being sponsored by the Satanic Temple. That's, that's a joy <laughs> to me. Good. I'm so I'm so glad. I'm so delighted by that. And, you know, I completely agree with you that, that the movie Hail Satan by Penny Lane is, is gospel. It's good news. And, mm-hmm. you know, really the first moment for me when I... F- looking back when David Dark and Satanism had a weird had a weird, you know, like midnight meeting at the crossroads was when oh, um, that's lovely. <laughs> was when I was um interviewing uh Greg Stevens for the first time and he's now one of my very mm. dear friends and Greg Stevens aka Priest Penamu he's the director of ministry for the Satanic Temple and he's been on my show a lot since then. And but we were just talking mm. about about religion and and how much we value religion as as atheists and non-theists and how we feel like religion versus atheism is a false binary and how we reject that yeah. false, that false binary. But then Amen. you know I 
I brought this up with Greg, uh, and I I mentioned you, and I brought up kind of the thesis of your book, which is that, or or one of the theses of your book, which is that religion is whatever guiding story is uh, whatever binding story is guiding our life. You know, what whatever mm-hmm. whatever binding narrative is is guiding our life and yeah white supremacy for instance exactly and and you know whatever underlying binding story and and that can be a good story it can be a positive story but we always have we but but we have to examine it and and i brought this up with greg and and i was like in my view whatever binding story we have that is religion and he said absolutely and that was the moment that was the moment at which david dark and and the satanic temple crossed paths for me and um you know i and really passed the peace to one another <laughs> yes exactly you know and a passing of satanic peace a passing of satanic peace exactly and so you know i your book in uh life's too short to pretend you're not religious was really a huge influence on me for understanding of just how expansive religion can be and and it kind of helped me come to peace with the fact that I am personally a non-theist but I am also a deeply religious person and there there yeah. isn't there isn't much space in in atheist spaces right now for yeah for religion but your book kind of was one step towards helping me understand that that I can be fully religious, I can embrace my religious identity, I can be happy mm-hmm. as a as a religious person, and I can um, accept the other part of who I am, which is a queer non theist. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so your book was enormously helpful for me in that, and I hope everyone goes and read it. Oh, thank you, and thanks for kind of being a bridge figure in that because I completely understand when folks are. It's a useful word to say I grew up religious mm. when you don't have a way, you don't even want to go back to it to think about it because it was so awful. I understand. We do that with politics as well. I try to stay out of politics. I don't mm. want to talk about religion. I understand, especially when we're down or abused or bullied. Whenever those two words arise, now we're talking about politics. Now we're talking about religion. I I totally get and want to revere the mental space in which folks try to get clear of that, maybe for years, maybe for the rest of their lives. Mm. But I think one reason I think the argument is is necessary is because we... If we think that we have pegged the um, sort of multitudinous being of another human being when we think of them as they're religious and I'm not, that does get into a pretty dark, denial, dissociative place. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of do that with my Bible class, too. I My students are often surprised when they realize that I'm not asking them to believe or accept anything about this collection, but I want them to at least note that it's maybe it's whatever a particular text in this collection of many different differing texts has to say, it's probably at least as interesting as what they're going to hear on AM radio or something. <laughs> like it has information. There's an intelligence there. And it's worth in the engaging way that with. Intelligence. 
That's right. So whether it's the Hamilton musical, Toni Morrison's Beloved, a Kendrick Lamar album, all of these are are contributions to the Earth's Long Chronicle, including in the case of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is arguably an atheist text within this collection that is often used to argue for the existence of God. So I'm just trying mm-hmm. to help people know what resources that there's a there's an ancient playlist there collected by the Jewish community and the early Jewish messianic community called Christianity that is going to have have some usefulness but it's not there to uh to destroy people or um silence people into submission so thank you for your testimony about the book um coming through for you in yeah that way. it really really did and you know, I so appreciate what you were just saying about scripture because I feel like I, oh, how do I even? I, I was, I was just about to say I feel like I love scripture, and then the moment I was about mm. to say that, I was like, mm, I think it's a bit more complicated than that. Sure, I, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I love um, absolutely. And then there are other parts of scripture that that fill me with kind of fear and loathing. Um, sure. And then, but but it it's worth me too. Yeah, I mean the the texts of terror like Sodom and Gomorrah and and the Great Flood yeah. and and all of those stuff. It's it's horrific, and it's worth engaging with because it's like this is this is our whether we like it or not. This is our religious yeah. and this is our religious and literary and collective history. The, this is like the the lineage of our mm-hmm. of our thinking and our lore and our mythology and you know whether we agree yeah. with, whether we think it's real or not whether we agree with it yep. or not whether we are Christians or not it is really worth engaging with and that that's one of this the things is the available lore so oh say that one more time this is the available lore exactly I mean, it's not the only available lore but I love it when somebody swears in to be a member of Congress or something, uh-huh. and they swear on something other than the Bible, whether <laughs> it's the Quran. I forget what it was. I've often said that if I if I had to do that, that I would swear on a copy of R.E.M.'s Monster. <laughs> it's just this amazing, this amazing album yeah. with, with wisdom and yeah. intelligence, and it kind of foresaw all kinds of things. But if we think of the Bible that way, um, it is one of among many pools that we can that we can draw on. Absolutely, yeah, and you know I think that Satanism is a modern non-theistic Satanism, or at least my own personal non-theistic Satanism, because I can't speak for other mm. Satanists. Is that you know it is a very conscious acceptance of our lore. It is the acceptance yeah. for me personally. It is the acceptance that I have kind of this ruined city of my Christianity, and mm. and you know I I live amidst these ruins of my faith and my Christian background and the Christian mythology, and it is almost more redemptive and more powerful and more healing to take those ruins and to create something new with it, and to yeah. and to create. Oh, that's great. Let me just say. If you haven't written down that line about, for you, your experience of Satanism is the conscious acceptance of your Lord, that's just great. Because to <laughs> it, I might, I, I will write that down. Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll write an yeah, article about that. I don't know that, that anybody 
with my students who want to, who many of whom want to revere the Bible or diss the Bible without having read it, one of my challenges is if you were to say, I believe the Bible, and then I said, well, can I ask you a question? Sure. Have you read the Bible? Hmm. Really? Yeah. Well, no. Okay. I know you want to say that you believe it because you've been taught that that's what you say. But can you actually believe it if you haven't read it? Yeah. You know, just kind of giving them... so to consciously accept whatever it is, whether it's, you know, all seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Twin Peaks or Kendrick Lamar again. I, I hope that I am somebody who has meaningfully accepted those things. But it's also kind of a life's work, this conscious acceptance of what's been put in front of me. So anyway, I wanted to praise that because that's a great way of, um, I think it's June Jordan who says that poetry is is a way of taking control of the language of your life. doesn't mean you're bossy exactly, but it's kind of a taking responsibility for your own spoken words, your stories, the witness, whether it's lyrical or artistic or, um, yeah, to be a more conscious witness to to your own input, output, content, all that kind of stuff. So I, I just wanted to jump in with that word of affirmation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and the to take to take responsibility or or to take ownership of of the myths that have been given to us. And you know, I personally find it much more empowering and productive to to take the resources that I've been given and to make something new with it. You know, and yeah, and, and so that's to, the job exactly, and and to take this mythology that I've been given, this this broken, traumatizing mythology that I was given, and to make something genuinely good and beautiful from it. And there were part I I have to clarify, there were I still love the story of Christ. That story still mm. moves me, and I still you know, and and like in in my desk on my desk right now, I have an icon of Jesus. Um, on my altar right next to me, I have an icon of Jesus right next to the Baphomet. So to me, these these narratives, these stories are not opposed to one another. There there are different symbolic universes that that I feel like I can move between. But yeah. oh, I just had a question. What was it? Oh oh, one thing that I I do want to clarify for people listening is it you know if you find that the Bible is is just too traumatizing for you right now, like. If, like mm. me, you grew up queer or trans, and the Bible is just too radioactive for you right now, uh, the important thing is to heal from that and, and to not engage with it if you feel mm. like it's just going to bring up darkness for you. Uh, so don't don't interpret this as as pressure to engage with something that you're not ready to engage with. You know, and, and Amen. you know, I, <laughs> for example— I remember kind of in the last days of my Christian faith, I loved reading the Bible still, but it was a very love-hate relationship, and I had to, like, blare metal music while I was reading the Bible just to, like, try to drown out <laughs> the associations yeah. that I had with it, like this lifetime of toxic associations with, that I had with the Bible. And so I would, like, blare metal music while listening or while while reading the Bible to try to, like, That's good. reprogram some of those associations. But it's really hard because those associations with the Bible go really deep. And, 
you know, I, I actually, this is an incident that I've been thinking about a lot lately, where uh, when I was at Montreat College, tiny little Christian school, I was one of I've the. I've been there. I've spoken at Montreat. Yeah, I know you were. You spoke there when I was there. Actually, I didn't see you speak. Did but... David Wilcox and my wife perform that time? I think so. Yeah. I love David Wilcox, okay. and I need to get him. Um, I do too. I need to get him on the show. But I was one of the few out gay people on campus, and there was a math class, and I sat. I, I, I the, this math teacher started every week or or every class with a with a sermon, basically, mm. and with a oh, Bible boy. study. And there was, and I I remember just thinking each time, like, this is fucking math class. Like, just just teach us math. Yeah. Like for real, <laughs> but yep. I remember vividly one day coming into math class that uh, that Monday, sitting down, and then the professor opening his Bible and he turned it to Romans one, and uh-huh. Romans one for people who know the Bible is the is one of the most notorious uh, verses. Yeah, clobber passages, they're called, um, which have been historically used to condemn gay people. And he read it in full, occasionally looking up to stare me straight in the eyes. Oh, my gosh. That's like the opening of a movie. Yeah. And and then he would riff on the passage and, and just... Um, you know, God has given men, you know, God has given gay men yeah. over to their reprobate desires or whatever it is to over to their perverted desires or I, I forget unnatural traded mm-hmm. traded natural for unnatural desires yeah. and now lust after men. And and he would riff on it and he would just stare directly at me. And it was the most uncomfortable, awful Experience. I just wanted mm-hmm. to like crawl under the desk and die. Sure. And yeah. it's like the Bible publicly being used as a weapon against me. And mm-hmm. and the class was dead silent because everyone knew that I was gay and everyone knew that it was yeah. directed right at me. And uh, I'd love to hear from everyone in that room now how they remember that. Yeah, you know? same, actually. And I'm thinking that I might reach out to some of them and see how they remember it. But yeah, so, you know, I guess I just tell that story to emphasize that people have horrific, traumatizing experiences with the Bible. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just let it go for a season and, um, sure, and hear sure. from it. Yeah. Or I don't want to push it, but let go of it indefinitely you know like yeah i'm not going back to that yeah exactly um, i want to let everybody off the hook yeah. as much as i'm into it you know the idea that you have to keep going back to it to be whole <laughs> this is crazy i can't believe i'm going to try to do this but i almost want to say to the idea that you have to keep going back to be whole I almost want to say, get behind me, Satan, <laughs> to that thought. I, I know exactly what you're saying. I uh, completely understand. And if, it's almost... If by that, we're, we're, we're referring to sort of the spirit of accusation. To the biblical Satan. Than, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, let it go. It's similar to that uh, passage in Proverbs about a dog returning to its vomit. And it's true. There are yeah. times when the Bible really is that vomit that we just have to let go. Is and, the vomit? 
That's right. So, David, you're a bit of an unconventional Christian, I would say. I'm curious. Sure. I, I accept the, the adjective <laughs> as a compliment. Um, <laughs> Coming for me, it definitely is a compliment. Christian, yeah, in our day, Christian, um, I tried to call Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, Christian today, and somebody said, you know, it, the word is so lost that that's one of the most... I know you're trying to give her a compliment, but don't do it. And, mm. um, yeah, so I am unconventional, and um, I completely understand that, like the word evangelical, the word Christian, in some ears, is practically synonymous with white supremacist anti-masker at this stage. Mm. I, I don't think that's the case, but one can be forgiven for presuming, at least among white people, um, that Christian refers to um, someone whose denial of their own desires and or their own footprint, their own responsibility in the world, is a form of terror. Um, so I'm recognizing that, and I'll hand it back to you on the Yes, I, I can be called something of an unconventional Christian. <laughs> well, you know, I was just wondering, how do other Christians respond to you? Like, what is it like being David Dark in the Christian world in Tennessee? Oh, that's great. That's really great. Um, I would say within the last four years, um, oh, that's that's a, such a gift of a question. It's taken me a moment. Um, <laughs> I think because I am now... Um, tenured faculty at a school, I have a little more freedom than I would if I was a minister at a predominantly white church and I believed in climate change or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And it would be different if I was at a different stage of my own thing. When I taught high school, I taught high school at at a, what was, it's a Presbyterian academy. Um, I was an English teacher. So I could say things that most parents would disagree with and um, very kindly people would think, oh, well, he's just being a devil's advocate, when in fact I was saying what I actually thought. I think I do feel like I'm on a kind of mission to pull Nashville, the best of Nashville, whether it's, um, you know, Dolly Parton or Taylor Swift or um, Jason Isbell, or the the lunch counter synod, which occurred here. It was in Mm -hmm. 1959-1960 that the Reverend James Lawson and um, students from Fisk and elsewhere um, desegregated the lunch counters by sitting there and getting arrested and getting beaten without fighting back. There's so much good here in Nashville, but Nashville is also the Vatican of Christian marketing, we could say. Mm-hmm. Or the marketing that forced it, the, what I sometimes call the faith cartel, where Republican politicians wow. um, refer to Christ and they get a pass. And uh, as we know, it'll be, and again, I have no idea where we're going to be when this broadcasts. But at the moment, that faith cartel of white people who think of themselves as Christian have formed a circle of protection around a white supremacist sexual predator for four years. Hmm. And um, that's a new thing for me. I mean, it it still feels like rather recently that I woke up and realized that um, 
that Donald Trump had won the presidency with the help of people who had famously succeeded in marketing themselves as being of God. I won't give, yeah, this this is a good thing to be talking to a Satanist about. <laughs> um, I won't give, if we think of Christianity as a kind of philosopher peasant revolution that occurred in Jesus's understanding of the prophets and his social vision of sharing your stuff and loving your enemy, all the great, the great, great stuff in the Gospels. If Christianity is that, then that is a movement that I am kind of hell-bent on not surrendering to a white supremacist terror cartel that has advertised itself as being biblical and or of God. So I'm, I'm pretty outspoken, and I have felt called to be more outspoken um, over the last four years, to double back to what we were talking about earlier, as I've watched people that I've known my whole lives, my whole life, um, completely kind of give in um, to the to a white supremacist terror movement. Hmm. Um, so, but I do. I feel safe and comfortable. I. Um, I write about all kinds of things. Um, I do reviews of albums, and I weigh in with various publications. When LeBron James said, oh, goodness, what was this? This was in Kenosha, Wisconsin, when Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times. LeBron James tweeted something like, fuck this, man. We've got to do something. And I had the opportunity with Pace Magazine to write about that and say that that was what I call a profanity prayer. Because mm-hmm. William Blake says that honest indignation is the voice of God, that real <laughs> honest indignation mm-hmm. in the face of evil, abuse, oppression is the voice of God. And so I occupy this strange space where I, I do believe in God, but I don't Oh, to go to Blake again. Blake said, the vision of the Christ that thou dost see is my vision's greatest enemy. Mm. And um, Blake saying that to Christendom and to tyranny that tried to market itself as divine, I I feel very much uh, kinship with him. And the more I read Blake, the more I'm about ready to believe that everything that we call rock and roll kind of starts with Blake in a way. I mean, it's not like a direct line, but that Blake, Blake was, yeah, Blake really was, and he, Blake said that religion and politics are the same thing. And so I think I'm trying to um, pick up what he laid down and shoot off a signal flare in the country music capital of the world. I'm a, I'm a Nashville lifer and I love Nashville and I'm trying to, uh, take what's best about it, both in my conversations with people locally, as well as it's uh, the, you know, the rest of the world. I'm, I feel like I'm kind of fighting for Nashville mm-hmm. and, and loving it too. It's so I would love it if I, I would love to write a novel that takes place in Nashville and get at some of the contradictions and the trades and the toxic associations that occur. This is a strange little, a strange tangent to go down in a sense, but you know who Michael W. Smith is? Do you remember that? Oh, of course, yeah. Worship worship artist for people who don't know. 
Yeah, so he's been at it since the 80s. Um, he came to my high school when I was 17, and I gave him a uh, student newspaper. I'd written an article about Walt Whitman, and um, I, I liked Michael W. Smith at the time, and I gave him that article, and he looked at me, and he said he would read it. And ever since then, I've, I've felt, and I taught one of his kids when I taught at that high school. I've, I've watched him try to do really good work. Um, one of the things that he does is he's got a, a kind of safe teen space called Rocket Town, named after one of his um, songs, in downtown Nashville. I've seen Death Cab and Pedro the Lion play there. It's kind mm. of an all-purpose event space. That's cool. But um, last week, um, Rocket Town at least rented out the space for a viewing party of the presidential debate that had John Rich of Big and Rich and mm -hmm. Tommy Lauren kind of officiating. That really bothered me, mm -hmm. um, not just because I, they're sort of Fox News personalities at this mm -hmm. stage, not because it, I mean, it was kind of a pro-Trump thing. It looked like that to me. And I thought this is a real shame for Rocket Town. Rocket Town's a safe space for youth. It usually avoids partisan politic perception. And I um, I put the flyer up on Facebook and said, you know, if anybody is able to get through to management or to Michael W. Smith himself, please let this be one little thing saying, how about we not do this? Hmm. How about we don't let Rocket Town host this kind of event, especially during a pandemic, because we don't want another super spreader yeah. occurrence. And um, that's the kind of thing that, and I'm kind of doing two things simultaneously. I am loving, I hope, Rocket Town and Michael W. Smith. But I'm also saying, think a little harder about your your brand. You have a legacy that um, is soiled or is darkened, in a sense, through your association with Jerry Falwell Jr. or Mike Pence or any of these figures, all of whom are, of course, human beings themselves who are trying to make a a living trying to leave a legacy behind but so i'm kind of jumbling all over the place but i long for nashville to live up to its best moral visions and there's lots of that here hmm. and um i can sometimes get people upset with me for saying anything at all about something like that but at 50 i feel a little more like an adult speaking to peers rather than a young whippersnapper or a troublemaker. It's like, no, I, and I can't believe I'm going to say it out loud, but it's part of the flow. I have a PhD in religion now. Yeah. So I might, it, it could be that I might have some counsel for you that would help, not because I'm an academic. I kind of stumbled into that a little later in life, but because I've been around, I've been here all this time, and mm -hmm. I've, I've treasured the cultural products of Nashville. And I don't like watching those cultural products um, get pulled into a white supremacist marketing scheme any more than I like hearing John Fogarty and Springsteen being used at a Trump rally. So I write about stuff. I I tweet like a madman all day long. <laughs> you really I do. I watch you all day long on Twitter, like just yeah, going to war. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that it is because, like, if I read a, a William Blake line that I that had not grabbed me before, I can I do write it on a piece of paper or I put it on a computer file. But I would say life's too short to not put it on Twitter, so that anyone <laughs> who's 
is it's going to be there. It's more permanent than a notebook. I might lose a notebook. Yeah. But unless I have my account deleted, I can do a David Dark search with yeah. Mikhail Bakhtin or Northrop Fry or whoever, Tony Cade Bambara. And it's like, oh, I quoted Tony Cade Bambara back in 2011. You know, and, and it's there forever, and it's there after I die. Yeah. Um, there's a sense in which that Twitter feed is a more lasting document than any book that I write or any uh, review that I post. Hmm. So that's a, a long response to a real gift of a question, and that's kind of, I think I am a teacher primarily in the months between finishing at Vanderbilt and not getting a full-time job. I tried to just write and not teach, and I found that very difficult because the 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 free association back and forth with students when we're looking at material together, that's where I kind of get the idea for the next paragraph. So um, teaching first and foremost, as long as I can get paid to do it, but even then I'm probably going to want to do book clubs or mm. go on social media to get into it with somebody. So... There's a quote from an interview I did with Lucian Greaves, uh, who is the founder mm. of the Satanic Temple. And I remember him from the movie. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. He's amazing. And and I wrote an article about this, which I will link in the show notes. But part of this quote from Lucian that I just found so interesting, talking about other religious groups, talking about theists, theistic Christians, mm. he he said now I'm not willing to just entirely disregard the progressive factions of these belief systems, but I am willing to work as an ally with them when they understand what I believe, who I am, and they don't ask me to do otherwise. And I feel like when we really make some inroads in the fight against theocracy, we are going to make those inroads by alliances with progressive Christian groups, progressive Jewish groups, progressive Muslim groups, and other established religious organizations. And I, I read that because I feel like you're very much kind of a kindred spirit, and I feel like you're one of those mm -hmm. Christians who will just tenaciously not cede the ground to the theocrats, who will just tenaciously not not let the gospel go, the gospel being the good news, the radical, social, you know, complete reframing of humanity and society that the gospel offers us, you're just not willing to let that go. And I really think that the war that we're in against what you called the faith, uh, the, the, the faith cartel. Faith cartel. Yeah, yeah. The, the war against the faith cartel, it can't just be the Satanists and the atheists fighting them. I think that the real... I think that that what will really overcome them is people, or or what will really overcome that ideology is other Christians. It, it's going yeah. to have to be other Christians to mm. to make the stand and say this doesn't represent our faith, and we refuse to let this be the only kind of Christianity. And and so it 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 can't just be the Satanists, and it can't just be the atheists and the humanists and whatnot yeah. fighting fighting <laughs> against right. a, you know fighting against uh, the faith cartel. It has to be other Christians, and I think that's one reason why your work is so valuable and inspiring because you're one of those other Christians who's who's just like putting your foot down and not budging and being like fuck you um and uh well i want to mention too patty smith you know it's one of her famous songs people have the power 
Yeah. And a beautiful line in that song is people have the power to wrestle the earth from fools. Yes. And I love wrestle because wrestle is both jihad and Israel. Mm. Israel is strives with God and jihad is struggle. And within Islam, it is said that the greater jihad is the inner jihad. Mm. It's kind of that work with your own imagination, with consciously grappling with your own lore, yeah. we might say. And I won't, yeah, with the faith cartel, I will not cede the genius, genius of Jesus and the prophets to that terror effort that attempts to co-opt. Yeah, and theocracy, it's, it's funny, this is a strange passage that probably didn't come to me. I mean, I'm, I'm sure my eyes scanned it, but I didn't read it until a few years ago. In Judges, there's a little thing called the parable of the bramble in which one brother is trying to become the king and he has all of the other brothers killed. And then this surviving brother tells this story both to his murderous brother and to the people who helped the murderous brother kill the male members of their family. And the parable of the bramble is essentially saying that that a day came when all of the trees were trying to appoint a king among themselves. So they go to the olive tree and say, you rule over us. And the olive tree says, why would I do that? I, I give this oil and it makes everybody happy. And they go to the fig and the fig says, oh, no, thanks. I have a good time just providing figs, which is sweet. And they go to the vine and the vine says, nope, great time providing wine that makes the hearts of all people glad. And then they go to the bramble, which is the bush, which is only fit for burning. And the bramble says, sure, I'll do it. But if you don't do what I say, I'm going to burn you all. I'm going to burn down all the cedars of Lebanon. So it's this crazy little parable, Mm. which I think is an anarchist parable, because it's suggesting that the one who wants to rule over others is the most worthless. There's Mm. almost a a Buddhist sense to this. Mm. And I think that the prophets, of course, in what is called the Old Testament, advise against anyone being a king, advise against any centralized authority. So I think within the scripture, there is something like that anti-theocracy hmm. impulse, um, I, just in your description of that struggle. And it's, um, it's Thoreau, it's Whitman, it's um, Sojourner Truth. We just have all of these folks in our history who have fought against those who are prone to confuse the voice of God for the voice in their heads. And it is one, yeah, it's it's emancipation of the mind and overcoming what Bruce Coburn calls the, the inner fascist architecture within us that wants, again, this doubles back a little, that gives into deferential fear. Hmm. And the Hail Satan film and everything you're talking about is about overcoming that. And um, I'm in because I think it is a righteous a righteous work that to me isn't contrary to that which I call Christianity, but is at the heart of anything worth preserving. I like to say that Christianity is transparency, or it's nothing at all, Hmm. or it's abuse. Yeah. So thank you for counting me as an ally in this, because that's that's what I live for. Hmm. I think that's a great note to end on. David Dark, thank you so much for joining me. 
thanks for making me a part of this, and I'm happy to do it again whenever yeah. you want me. Let's definitely do this again. Well, that is it for this show. As always, the music is by The Jelly Rocks and Eleven D7. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. There will be a link in the show notes. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das, and the show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Media. As always, hail Satan, and we'll see you next week.